You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. If you, if, you didn't, uh, if you don't have a seat, we always leave the best seats available at the front, right? So there are some seats available at the front. Um, well, it's good to come together this morning and, uh, and to worship the Lord together. Uh, I was just thinking about some of those days of preaching to a camera and uh, just how hard that was and then just how sweet it is to be together together this morning. Uh, kind of emotional, but it's... Uh, it is so good to be together. Looks like there's a grade three to six class as well. So you, you guys probably already know that. But anyway, you're figuring it out. It's great. Um, well, we wanted, as elders, as we talked, if there was a way for us to be able to come together and, and to worship together in one service, we wanted to try to make that work. And so um, as the kiddos leave, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a little bit more space in here. But we've went from business class to economy as far as your seating goes, but, but we're okay. And uh, we are studying the book of Joshua this summer. And Matt has done the first chapter that we're going to look at today. And we're also going to look at chapters 4 and 5 up to verse 12. So we got a lot to cover this morning. But as we do, before we get going, I want to ask you how, many would you, how many of you would say you're a theologian? How many would say they're a theologian? Okay. Um, you're all theologians. Okay. What is a theologian? It's, it's someone who has an idea of who God is, and everyone does have an idea of who God is. The question is whether or not your idea of God is accurate. And, um, of course, in our world, billions of people uh, worship what they would call gods, gods of their own making, gods that have uh, been made up over the centuries, and people have a system, and they believe that if they follow their particular gods, that everything will go well for them uh, in this life and in the life to come. In our modern age, I, I find it so humorous, honestly. There, there is like, there is no God. The universe is just telling us that, and it's like, uh, sounds like a lot like God, all right? So yeah, whether you call it the universe or you call it karma or whatever, people all have an idea of who God is. In the church, we can even uh, have views of God that are differing and sometimes uh, having views of God that are wrong. As we think about our views of God, I, have you ever heard of some people say, well, he's the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the Old Testament. And then there's the God of the New Testament. Everyone, anyone hear that before? Right? That's a terrible statement. As if, as if God was different from Genesis to Malachi than he is from Matthew to Revelation. If you read the whole book, you'll see that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so we can have wrong views of who God is. And I want to suggest to you this morning, as we look at Joshua 3 to 5, that your view of God directly impacts the way that you live your life on a daily basis. And the way that you live your life on a daily basis directly impacts your view of God. They go hand in hand together. And as we'll see this morning, as we look at this passage, God is revealing himself to Israel in mighty ways, and he has an expected response from his people, just as he does today. And so we're going to look at this. I'm going to finish off the reading that Matt has started. So we looked at Joshua 3. What are they doing? They're crossing the Jordan River. But they're not quite over yet. As we get to chapter 4, there's something else he wants us to understand. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to it. Joshua 4, as I say often, I have nothing for you. Our goal in gathering together this morning is to discover what does God's Word say. We do not care about man's opinions. We only care about what God's Word says. That is our authority. And so let us study together. We've looked at Joshua 3, now we begin chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man. 
and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among them. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where their feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do those, these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel had walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land of the, the, that the Lord had sworn to the fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it, is, so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were circumcised, because, sorry, they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal, Gilgal to this day. And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. 
And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And we pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, there's so much that we have just read here of your faithfulness, of your power, of your goodness to your people. God, as we study these things this morning, we pray that we would have a greater view of who you are. God, we all have an idea of who you are, but God, we want our ideas to be accurate. We want them to be informed by your scriptures. God, help us to be guarded against making a God of our own making. And Lord, help us to worship you in fullness for who you are. God, we do praise you that we have this time together this morning. It is so good to to come together and worship you. Thank you for this gift called the church, Lord, this gathering together, Lord, that you've given us. God, I pray that hearts and minds would be encouraged this morning, that we would leave here with a better understanding of who you are, that we would be more faithful, more loving as a result of what you're about to teach us. Lead this preacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, your view of God impacts how you live, and how you live impacts your view of God. And as we look at the book of, sorry, these chapters in Joshua today, we will see five daily responses needed by God's people if they are to view God rightly. Five daily responses needed by God's people if they are to view God rightly. The first is revere him. Each and every day we ought to revere the Lord. We ought to worship him. He is a great and awesome God. And we ought to live accordingly. One of the central objects in these verses, as you looked at chapters 3 and 4 especially, is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Ellsworth helps us in understanding what was this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a box of wood overlaid with gold. And inside the box were the stone tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. On top of it was the mercy seat. This was a gold slab which covered the box, and on each, end of the gold, on each end of it was a golden cherub who was looking down at the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where the high priest of Israel sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. So much foreshadowing of what Christ would do for his people. And this Ark of the Covenant obviously was a very special object for the nation of Israel. It represented the presence of God, the presence of God with his people as a result of that mercy seat, of of the sacrifice for their sins. God could be with them. Sixteen times in chapters three and four, the Ark of the Covenant is brought up. The presence of God is an important thing. It was an important thing in their lives. It's an important thing in our lives. God is making it clear as they're about to go into this promised land that the only way that they're going to be able to accomplish what God is calling them to accomplish is if he goes before them. If God does not go before them, it will not go well for them. And we're going to see some of that as we study the book. But if God is for them, then who can be against them? The ark, it was carried by two poles. There's rings on each side of the ark And so there'd be two guys in the front, two guys in the back. That's how the ark was carried. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that if you did it wrong, there was major consequences, right? You would die if you would touch the ark. And so this is how it must be carried. God had a prescribed way for them to do so. And so we read back in chapter 3, verse 3, this is what they're supposed to do. As soon as he tells the people of God, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Do not go into the land. Do not try to go across the river. Don't do anything until you see my presence go before you. After that, then they're told this, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Again, specific instruction. 
ark is going to go before you. And as you all know, 2,000 cubits is how long? Okay, about 900 meters, so almost a kilometer, so a considerable distance apart from the ark. They are supposed to follow behind. Again, this was a very holy object. If you did not do what you were supposed to do, it would not go well with you. I love this picture in the scriptures, right from Genesis to Revelation. This awesome, powerful God that must be respected, that must be revered, and if you do not follow him in the way that he prescribes, you will be struck down. And then, at the same time, the God who is present, the God who is a comforter, the God who invites us to come into his presence and, and to get that balance off will be a very bad thing. If you think that God is just this powerful God, you will see him as distant and cold and you will feel like he wants nothing to do with you. But if you feel like you can just walk up to God and give him a high five, then that's a big problem too. Right? Both need to be clung to. And this is what they're being told. I am in your presence, but keep your distance so that you will know the way that you should go. And so it is for you and I. If we are to live the lives of worship that our God is due, then we must follow him in the way that he prescribes. We must follow him as his word tells us to, not in the ways that we think, Right? If I could count how many times in, in my time in ministry over the last 30 years of people like, well, I think, well, it doesn't matter what we think, right? It only matters what God's word says. Amen? Amen. That's the way we must follow him. So that's what they're told to do. And then they're also told to do this. Next verse, they're told to consecrate themselves. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for, the Lord, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What does it mean to consecrate yourself? Howard says this, the core idea is that of separation from things that are unclean or common. That is, anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. Here the people were to consecrate themselves. Their proper preparation would have included extensive and rigorous ritual preparation including thorough washings and abstinence from sexual relations and certain foods. God had instructed the Israelites in a similar, similar way at Mount Sinai. In other words, the people are called to be holy as he is holy. And as they do that, then they'll be prepared to see God's mighty work that next day. Again, if, I love the parallels here. If you and I want to see God at work, then what? We must be holy as he is holy. We must be set apart from the things of this world. I believe that everyone here would love to see God at work. You, you would love to see him work in power. But maybe the problem is in your life right now is that you are clinging to sin in your life. And even as God is at work, you don't see it because you're too focused on seeing your kingdom come rather than seeing his kingdom come. And so we must be set apart if we were to see God at work. And this is what he's setting his people up to do. He's saying, okay, tomorrow there's going to be a great work. Consecrate yourselves, and then you'll be ready to see this great work. So in our daily response to God, we ought to revere him. Secondly, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. Again, this is set the scene. They, they had been in uh, the town called Shittim, or however you want to say it. All right? I'm not Hebrew, so I'm not sure. Okay, but that's well known lines. Anyways, they went from there, and then they went to the river, and they've been there now for three days. And as they're there, you have, they had to be thinking, like, okay, how are we getting across this? Like, how's this going to happen? Like, we're here at the river. But like this river is a pretty massive spectacle, right, to get across. And, and, and you got women and children and older folks and all your stuff you got to try to get across. How's this going to happen? And, and God has made it such that they're going when? Time of drought? No, time of flooding, okay? Time of flooding, so much so that the water is overflowing the banks, 
I went tubing this last week, all right? And, and the water was like up to your knees if you got out of the tube. But even then, it was almost knocking me over, all right? This was not that kind of river, okay? It would have been over their heads, and it was fast flowing. So how in the world are they going to get across? Well, as the people are consecrating themselves, God gives instructions to Joshua that he is to pass on to the priests. Look down again at 3.13. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. I love that word picture, right? The waters are going to stand in a heap, right? Only God makes water stand in a heap, right? Try to do that on your own. It's not going to work, right? And so that's the plan. The ark is going to go out, and the people are going to follow. And as the priests get to the water, when their feet touch the water, then the water is going to stop flowing. That's going to require what? A little faith. A little trust. I, I can't help but think if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, what about when we'd get like within five feet of it? Maybe then, like just to open the river. That would be better, you know? And, and, and you know, if you're like the back two guys carrying the ark, you might be like, okay, well, I guess we'll see what happens, right? If they go in, I don't know, it still may not go well for us, but, but if you're the front two, you're literally having to take a step into the unknown and, and believing that when your foot touches the water, God's going to make that water disappear. There's an incredible act of faith that God's calling them to do here. And then, as we read, then once you get in, stand in the middle and then watch all two million people walk by you. And at the beginning, you're like, wow, okay, we're on dry ground. This is incredible. Like, God's done it. But as they're like, okay, like, and it, I love it, it says, and they made haste, right, as they went across, right? And nobody was like kind of wandering around, right? Like, it's like, okay, we're not sure how long this is going to last, but he's doing it. And that, isn't that like us? Okay, God, you're really being faithful right now, but are you going to continue to be faithful? Are you going to continue to do this? And he is faithful, Always faithful. And I just think about this moment as they're at the Jordan. God has made it clear the only way they're getting across is if he does it, right? There's nothing they can do about it. Only God can do this. And there's some times in your life where you're going to come up against a Jordan. And you're going to understand that there's only God can do that thing. And that's a really, really good place to be in. The reality is that's your everyday, but sometimes God has to bring an insurmountable position into your life for you to finally clue into the fact that God is the one who has to do it. I mean, consider your salvation. You want to talk about a Jordan River. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not, not one is good here. I look around, some of you I don't know, you're like, well, how do you know I'm not good? Because that's what the Bible says. No one is good, not even one. And that the consequences of our sin is death. And not just death in the sense on this earth where we die and are buried, but death eternally, separation from God. How can we be saved? How is it possible that, that we could be reconciled to the God we've sinned against? We got nothing. And, but as we've been learning in the book of Romans, God has offered this incredible plan of salvation that if you would stop and realize you're right, you got nothing, but you would put your trust in him, put your trust in Jesus Christ, realizing that he has died in your place, that his blood was shed so that you could have life, that he became the substitute, you taking his, sorry, him taking your sin and you taking his righteousness, and then the wrath of God being poured on him, that's how you and I might be saved. But you have to trust him. You have to trust him this morning. And I don't know if you've done that, 
in your life, but I want you to hear that the same God who can cause water to be piled up in a heap is the same God who can save your soul today if you would trust in him. We need to have a proper view of God when we come into our trials. Your faith will be tested. And for some, sadly, when the trials come, you, you, you're going to realize you've been building on sand. You don't really have an accurate view of God. You have, you have some kind of Santa Claus kind of God that, you know, if he just gives you what you want. Or, but you don't understand the God of the Bible. And I'm, I'm praying that everyone here would understand the God of the Bible. And I, I want us just to see how loving God is in this picture here. So he's told these guys, yeah, just take, take, your, take a step. When, when your feet hit the water, then I'm going to do it. But listen to what he calls himself in verse 13. The Lord of all the earth. Like if I tell you to go ahead and, and like put your foot in that water, you're going to drown, right? But if the Lord of all the earth tells you, the one who created it all, the one who's the master over it all, if he tells you to go ahead and do that, then you're like, okay. He's, a, he's much greater than what I would say is an impossible thing. He is the God of impossibility. So I'm going to believe him because he told me to. And that's what he's done here. And back in verse 10, he said, listen, I'm the, I'm the living God. And as a result of that, as you go into this nation, these nations, you're, you're going to defeat every one of them. Why? Because their gods are dead. They're stone idols. I'm the living God. And so God reminds us of who he is when we encounter our trials. I remember one of our greatest trials was, was of course, with, with Hope's health. And in those days, God's character just came alive to me. The fact that he, his love was steadfast became such an important thing in those days. That, that, that though my world was being tossed to and fro, his love remained. And that his faithfulness is great. That his mercies are new every morning. Can I just encourage you this morning, whatever trial you find yourself in, God is able. I hope look into his word and study it and be reminded of who he is. Is so much greater than whatever you face in your life right now. So thankful that his word reminds us that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Trust him. Trust him. We've come through an hour of trial, and there's more hours of trial coming before he returns. But he is always faithful, always faithful. Every day, trust him. Third thing, five daily responses needed by God's people if they are to view God rightly. Remember him. Remember him. Like, do you think that's important? Like, wasn't there a part in chapter four you're like, okay, I think we get it. Like, it sounds like you just repeated everything you just said at the beginning. Did you not see that? But why is he, he wants us to understand how important it is that we remember him. Consider this, the generation before them, they had seen God do incredible, incredible things. The 10 plagues that had come upon Egypt to free them out of their oppression. The, the Passover, they, they had went through the Red Sea. God had done all these miraculous events in their life, and guess what? It didn't change them. They were still the same whiners and complainers about three seconds later. Were they not? They get into the wilderness and all of a sudden they're whining and complaining again. So it is with you and I, if we're being honest. We need to remember God's faithfulness. And so he tells them, listen, here's what I want you to do. Choose one guy from each tribe and they're to grab a stone, okay, a stone, not, not a pebble, okay? The picture here is they, they're putting them on their shoulders. So there's some girth here, right? These stones they're picking up. But they're all to pick one up, and they're to carry them to Gilgal. 
Now, if you were paying attention there, in verse 9, it's kind of like, was there, were they setting them up in the river too? And then in Gilgal, were there two memorials? I think the, the ESV translate, or sorry, the NIV translation is helpful where it says this, Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in, that's the key there, that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And so, note two, they're given permission to come into the presence. 900 meters before now, these guys are told, come into the presence, you grab the stones, because God's giving allowance to do that. And then they're to build this memorial at Gilgal. And we see in verse 20 of chapter 4, and these 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. This was to be a, re- a reminder to the people over and over again of what God had done on that day when 2 million people crossed the Jordan. I, have you ever seen one of those like, science shows trying to like, tell you how that happened? It's like so laughable. Like, okay, like, well, we think that maybe this happened, you know, like, and that's how the water was stopped up. Okay, well, how do you explain the dry ground all of a sudden? Because if you drained the water out, just simply drained the water out, guess what? It's going to be mucky. It's going to be, there's not going to be dry, right? But it was dry ground, And how long did it last to be dry ground? Until the priest took their steps onto the banks. And then, boom, the water started flowing again. God did it. God did it. So he wants them to remember this mighty work that he has done. Gilgal, as we're going to go through the book of Joshua, we're going to see it's a central place. They keep coming back to this place. And after they'd come back from a battle, they would see that memorial again. They're like, okay, yeah. God is faithful. God is powerful. We remember what he did. Let's remember that as we go into our next challenge. It was also to be something to inform future generations. We see that again at the end of Joshua 4, 21 to 24. He said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so this was to be something that the future generations would look at and they'd be like, what's with the stones here? Why is this here? And they would be able to talk about God's faithfulness. And then we see in verse 24, it was also supposed to be a witness to the surrounding nations of God, the fact that he is a mighty God. We need to remember the mighty works of God in our lives as well. This is why we take the Lord's Supper. It's a physical reminder of what Christ has done. It's an external reminder because God knows that we need these reminders if we are to be faithful to what he's called us to. We have baptisms which remind us again of what God has done in someone's life. And as they're baptized, we all come around them and encourage them and say, Continue on, strive on in your walk with Christ. And we can point them back to the day that they were baptized to remind them of, remember when you, when you, you committed to follow him? There's so many different ways that we can remember the Lord our God. I think it's interesting. I don't know, when, when your children were younger, if you remember this, if you have children a little bit older like mine, but you'd go to take communion and be like, what are you doing? What's that cup for? Right? Like, because they're not, and you, what? You have an opportunity. Well, this is what this signifies. And you got a chance to, t- to teach the gospel to them. And same thing with baptisms. Like, why are they doing that? Can I do that too? Right? Well, no, you can't do that right now, but let's, let's talk about that. Let's, why are they doing this? Right? And so you have those opportunities to continue to teach your children with these external reminders that God has given us. Do you have other things in your life? 
to help you to remember God's faithfulness? Do you journal, kind of just writing down things as you're going through them so that when you look back later, you're like, oh yeah, I remember when God did that in my life. Maybe you write down a prayer journal and just go back and, and be reminded over and over again of what God, how God answered your prayers, that he is a God who hears us, who, who answers us. Maybe you have special days in your life. You're the day you got saved, and every year you have a spiritual birthday just to remember when you first called out to the Lord in faith. And for us, December 14th is a very special day. It was the day when, when hope almost died. But God was faithful, and he kept her alive. We call it our celebration of life day. So every December 14th, we take time to remember what God has done. And so we need these remembrances in our life. If we, if we fail to remember, then we will fail in the present when the challenges come. And so have these daily reminders of God's faithfulness. So revere him, trust him, remember him. Fourthly, obey him, obey him. All through these chapters, you see this obedience Joshua listening to what God said, listening in every detail, and then he passed it on in every detail to the officers, to the priests, to the 12 men. Listen, this is what God's told us to do. And then they walked in faithfulness as well. As you read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that it does not go well for Israel when they don't do that. When the leaders get all off course, does not go well for them. When the, when the people, the previous generation, when they rebelled against Moses' leadership, it did not go well for them. We need to walk in obedience. God, knowing the importance of leadership, we've seen this in a couple of different places here in, in chapters 3 and 4, he wanted the people to see that I'm with Joshua. And so 3.7, he said, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. And then, after God did everything that he did, in chapter 4, verse 14, we say, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they stood in the awe of Moses all the days of his life. The people were God-fearing, and they could see that Joshua was following the Lord wholeheartedly, that he had been his, their vessel. And when he said, thus saith the Lord, guess what? He was representing God. He wasn't just making stuff up. It was an awesome thing as they were able to take the promised land, as we'll read in chapters to come. And so it is with us as well. Men who would stand in this pulpit must say, Thus saith the Lord. They, they must preach what God preaches. If they do not, the people ought to say, let's find a new leader, right? But if they are being taught the word of God and they are following, and, and, and the preacher is being faithful, then they ought to follow the leadership of the church. And that's the perfect model, Right? where God gives his elders to the church to lead them as they follow his word, and then the people follow and are equipped for the work of ministry. And so we must walk in obedience if we want to see God in all his glory. In chapter 5, there's a really interesting thing that happens here as we think about continuing to think about walking in obedience. They have just entered the land of the enemy. What ought they be to do, doing at this point? All right, let's set up, let's set up some guards, let's, let's set up some watches here because the enemy's going to be coming, and so let's, let's get ready. We've got to get to war now because, you know, there's no river between us anymore. Like, we've got to be on high alert. But what happens? They're to circumcise all the men. Humanly speaking, that's a terrible idea. Right? I remember when I read this, my, my mind flashed right back to Genesis 34. Remember Genesis 34? Dinah, this guy Shechem wants to marry Dinah, and the, guys are, the, the sons of Jacob are like, yeah, 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 you can marry her. We just need to do this. Get circumcised. 
Like, okay, we'll do that. And what are we told? On the third day, while they're still all in pain, Levi and Simeon come and kill them all. Like, not a great strategy for war to get circumcised. So humanly speaking, not a great idea. Being faithful to God, a really good idea. And I love how he explains here the obedience. It's not just the outward act. Because he makes clear, guess what? The generation before you, they came out circumcised. But they disobeyed me. So they had the outward actions, but they did not have the inward heart to obey and follow God. They were grumblers and complainers, and they said that God could not do what he said he would do, and so they all died in the wilderness. Now, we got this group who is walking in obedience to him, doing all that he's called them to. Now they need to have the outward act done as well. What a great reminder for you and I as well. God wants all of us. He does not want just your outward actions. Just showing up at church and then living your life however you want is not a great way to live. It's a very deceptive way, deceiving you. For on the day of judgment, God will say, I wanted all of you. I wanted your heart. I wanted your life. I wanted you to follow me in all your ways. So not just the outward actions, Not just inwardly, as James says, we're like, oh yeah, I believe, but then no outward actions. So outward and inward together, we must walk in obedience. And so while it may not have been a great plan on a human level, as we just read a few weeks ago in Romans 8, if God is for you, then who could be against you? So if God says, do this, you what? You do it. You do it. If you put him first in your life, then everything else comes into place. Just, I had the opportunity yesterday to do a wedding. And again, just a reminder of like, every time I think about marriage, it's this. If you and your spouse are wholeheartedly pursuing Christ, you're going to have a great marriage. You're going to have a great marriage. But the moment you guys get your eyes off of Christ... And you start saying, well, she doesn't do this, and he doesn't do that, and blah, 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 blah. It's not good. It's not good, is it? But as you both grow closer to Christ, you grow in your love for one another. You put him first, everything else is taken care of, just like we're seeing here. On an earthly level, not a great plan, but guess what? God is the one, as we're going to see next week, he's the one who's going to be winning the war anyway. So you just listen to him. And he will act for, on your behalf. And so they do that. And they have this time of, of healing, obviously. They get there on the 10th day. On the 14th day, guess what? Time for Passover. Man, I don't know. We're so busy right now. I mean, we just had a few days here to heal up from the circumcision thing. Should we not get off to war now? Because those guys are going to be ready to come. I think we should just maybe next month... Maybe, or sorry, next year when Passover comes, we're really going to celebrate then. But for now, we got to get to our work. Kind of sounds like us, right? Kind of sounds like us. But these guys are faithful. And they're like, no, no, God says at this time of year, 14th day, first month, we celebrate Passover. And so they do it. And they remember God's great power. And when the angel of death passed over Egypt, they were all saved. Why? Because the blood was on the doorposts. They remember God's great power in freeing them out of Egypt. God's faithfulness. They do what they're called to do. And the question is, in our busy lives, are we doing that? Are we being faithful to, to put God first on a daily basis? Are you taking time to be in his word, to pray, to, to, to be about the things of him, to be on mission? I'm praying that God will save so many people this summer as we go out. You are all missionaries. Do you understand that? Our job as the people of God is to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so wherever you go this summer... Be on mission. Be asking God, God, how can I share Christ with someone today? How can I be faithful today? God, I want to be used of you. 
I, I, I want to see your name great in all the earth. But God, first of all, what I need to do before I go out in battle, I need to spend some time in your, in your word to remember who you are when I come up against my obstacles today. I need to spend some time in prayer recognizing that I can't do anything unless you go before me. Let's follow the example of these Israelites who, I mean, and again, if I'm planning, I don't do this. I don't spend several days having these ceremonies. In my North American mindset, it's like, okay, I've got to get on mission, got to, got to, got to, got to. And as a result, you miss God. These guys, they put God first. They listen to do all that they're supposed to do. In a world where we can be so easily distracted to skip what God calls us to do, because what we believe, uh, sorry, because we believe we have matters that are more pressing, we could do well to follow their example here. So may God give us full devotion to him in walking in obedience. Revere him, trust him, remember him, obey him. The last daily response needed by God's people if we are to view God rightly, thank him. Thank him. The last verse that was read, Joshua 5, 12, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Really interesting transition. They had 40 years of having manna. God would bring it every day, except for what? The Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, you gather enough for two days. And so for 40 years, God had provided for his people. But now they're in the promised land. And God is still providing for his people. Now they're eating from the land. I wonder sometimes if we think that one is greater than the other. That the manna thing, well, that, that's far greater that's far greater, you know, because, because, you know, we know that food just is there all the time otherwise. God provides it all. We do understand that, right? I was talking to a farmer yesterday. He was up at a small town wedding talking some farming, okay? I don't know how many, like, appreciate that. But, like, another few days of what we had going on, crops weren't going to do too well, right? When it's that hot, without rain for that long, Crops don't grow, but guess what? God brought rain, and he's bringing rain. He is the one who provides it all. God is faithful always in the daily things. Just a kind of a side note, if God made rivers part every day, you wouldn't need a memorial. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? God's not always going to do a mighty miracle every day but he is providing for you every day. And so we need to keep that balance. Now, we, we don't understand what it's like to have no provision. I don't think anyone here can really get that. But these people understood when you're in the wilderness and there's nothing else, God is the one who's providing. And I believe as they come into this new land, they knew that God was providing. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Maybe for you and I, the closest we've come to any kind of panic was the toilet paper crisis of 2020, <laughs> right? When it's like, oh, I don't know. Is there going to be enough TP to go around, right? That was, a, I don't know who was buying all that. But anyway, but what does that show us? It doesn't take much for everything to get skewed. It doesn't take much. And God is the one who provides for you every day. You ought to thank him for everything you have. Not just your mindless thanks for the meal thing, but true thanks, remembering that he is one that provided. If you have a health issue, and you start thinking about how our bodies work, you start realizing how many things have to be going right on a daily basis for you to be healthy. It's a miracle every day if you are healthy. We ought not to take that for granted. And when there's circumstances in our lives that we would rather not come, 
we are to give thanks in those things as well. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As we were reminded in Romans 8, God is using whatever circumstances are coming into your life so that you might be conformed into his image. And so we ought to give thanks always for him. Let's not, let's not be, fall into the trap of the previous generation and grumble and complain, but always be thankful. Your view of God impacts how you live, and how you live impacts your view of God. Revere him, trust him, remember him, obey him, thank him. It's my prayer here this morning that every single one of you know God. Not just know about him, but know him. And by God's grace, you're growing in your knowledge each and every day in the circumstances that are coming your way. As I look around you, I know that there's different circumstances going on in your lives. Some are really difficult. Some are like really exciting. But I would pray that whatever you're going through, that you would be looking to him. That you'd be doing these five things on a daily basis. And that as you do so, your knowledge of him would just grow and grow and grow. That you might praise him and glorify him. And that as people look at your life, they would see how great your God is. As God's people who long to enter his rest, both in this life and in the one to come, this is our proper response. Let me pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for this time together this morning. We're so thankful for your word. God, as we think about these things, we're, we're just reminded of how incredible you are, God. Lord, the way that you cared for these two million people in such an intimate way. Lord, we pray that you would help us to increase in our faith to increase in our knowledge of you each and every day. That God, these habits, these, these things that we've talked about here this morning would become habits in our lives. That Lord, we live lives of worship, lives where we trust you no matter what we're going through. Lives, when we, lives where we reflect, we remember what you've done, lives of obedience, lives of thankfulness. God, help us. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who's not currently following you, God, would you help them to see that you are good and that you are the Savior? If they would put their trust in you, Lord, that they might have eternal life. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by the word this morning. That as we leave here, our eyes and minds, our eyes, and, sorry, our eyes and hearts would be fully fixed upon you. Lord, that you might be honored and glorified through our lives. Lord, use us to be a testimony to a lost and dying world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.